Uh, I'm excited about the next couple months together as we're going to be talking about prayer. And uh, we're going to be taking a journey, I think, that most of us would say, if we're honest, is very needed in our life. That we need to be more about prayer than we have been about prayer. And so uh, we're going to be doing a number of things. We're going to be having times of prayer here in the church service. So instead of announcements in the middle of the service, we're going to have times of prayer. We're going to, uh, some of those times will be led by individuals. Some of those times will be just you praying among your families. But we're going to be praying for different things, praying for our community, for the nation. But we're going to actually apply the processes of prayer. Because many times people say, I don't even know what I should pray about or how to pray. And so we want it to be as practical an application as possible. Because we want to help you uh, in your times of prayer. We want to help you with your prayer life. I remember Leonard Ravenhill once said, most people struggle with their prayer life because they don't have a prayer life. And, uh, and I thought that's, that's pretty accurate, I think. You know, uh, it's amazing how, you know, we turn to every medical thing we can think of. And then finally, as a last resort, we'll go to God in prayer and ask God for the great physician for his help when really we should go to who first? Amen. Is this mic on? Did everybody hear what I just said? We should go to who first? God, right? Amen. All right. I'm going to read you some scripture this morning to start out. So I want you to read these scriptures. You've probably heard most of them before. And uh, I just want you to pay close attention to these passages as I read them here this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and grovel and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Matthew 17, 21. However, this kind does not go out except by the word and fasting. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and exercise self-discipline lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke 11, verse 1. Lord, teach us to preach as John also taught his disciples. Acts 6, 4. But we will give ourselves continually to visitation and to the ministry of the word. Acts 12, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant meal train was offered for him by the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Praise without ceasing. 1 Timothy 2, 8. I desire therefore that the men fellowship everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Matthew 21, verse 13, And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of worship, but you have made it a den of thieves. Do you notice anything wrong with any of those passages? Yeah. There's something wrong with every one of those verses, that's for sure. Every one of them was altered just a little bit from the original. They still sound good. They still contain things that we probably ought to do as the body of Christ, but they've all been altered, and there's been one small substitution that has been made. Let me read those scriptures to you the way that they were actually written. 2 Chronicles 7.14 actually says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and pray and seek my face. Matthew 17.21 actually says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer 
and fasting. Matthew 26, 41 says, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Luke 11, 1 says, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Acts 6, 4 actually says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Acts 12, 5 actually says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 actually says, pray without ceasing. 1 Timothy 2.8 actually says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And Matthew 21.13 actually says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. A house of prayer. How is it that we make our lives, our Christian faith, the ministry of the church in our own lives about so many things other than the main thing, which is to be in prayer. Amen? I substituted the word pray or prayer in those verses with other things that we do and are part of ministry. Worship, fellowship, visitation, even meal trains. Nothing wrong with any of those things that we do in the body of Christ, but none of them, everybody say none of them. None of them is a substitute for prayer. They make a great supplement to prayer, but they are not a substitute for prayer. Prayer is what God has called us to. It is that main thing. Disciples asked, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer. And yet you can go to most churches on any given Sunday and they'll do everything. You can think of worship and preach and and sing and maybe even dance. And then there'll be one minute of prayer. Pastor might get up and say a little prayer before he begins his sermon or, you know, and I was actually challenged about this listening to uh, the gentleman who is in charge of the uh, prayer ministry for Billy Graham's uh, ministry uh, here in, in Canada. And he was talking about this and he, he was saying, like, isn't it amazing how we get together as churches and on Sunday mornings and we do so little praying. And yet he said, my house will be a house of prayer. You know, we have prayer meetings here at the church, the first Tuesday of every month. And we have yet to have a prayer meeting that has even 50% of our attendance on Sunday morning. And it's because it's so much easier to do so most, almost any other thing than it is to pray. And yet God has called us to be people of prayer. It's the one thing that you and I have been called to do that's more important than any other activity. It's spending time in prayer and spending time in the Word. And if we don't do those activities, if we don't spend that time with Him, then we're going to find ourselves being anemic believers. Powerless believers. So as we take the ministry of prayer for the next few months, understand that we're not just calling you to a higher life in prayer, but we're calling ourselves also as pastors and leaders, as our leadership in the house, we're we're asking everybody to elevate our time and our life of prayer. Because we realize that we're not going to see the move of God that we desire in our city and our nation uh, without a move of prayer. Every move of God in history has been preceded by an incredible move of prayer by people waiting on the Lord. 
We're also, as I said, not going to just talk about prayer, but we're going to engage you in prayer. We're going to have times of prayer in the service. And for some of you, you're like, I don't even know how to pray with my family. That's okay. We're going to, we're going to teach you how to pray with your family, for your family. And, and, and can I say something, especially to the, to the men of the house today? We are supposed to lead our families. The Bible calls you the head of a house. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean that you're the one who gets to boss everybody in your house around. That's not what it means. It means that you're the one who, like Christ, laid down his life for the church. You lay your life down for your family. There's no greater way to lay your life down for your family than to do it in the presence of the Lord in prayer. So, man, we have to... I have so many guys who say to me, I just feel so awkward praying with my wife or praying with my children. But you must. It's called leading in your house and learning how to stand in the gap on behalf of your family. We do it in prayer. We're going to invest ourselves in establishing a culture of prayer in Desert Street. So if we want to unlock a move of God, if we want to unlock revival, then the key that we need to stick in that lock is the key called prayer. Amen? We need to turn that thing and unlock prayer if we are going to see the fruits that we want to see in our lives, in our community, our family here, and in this nation. Amen? So we're going to be about building a culture of prayer. So let me ask you a question. How is the Christian prayer meeting going to change the world? I got an answer for you. It won't. It won't. What we need instead is a Christian prayer culture, not a prayer meeting. Prayer meetings are good, but they need to be built upon a culture of prayer. Where prayer is something that is so natural to us, it's as natural as breathing. So then when we have a meeting where we come together, prayer becomes as natural an expression of our lives together as breathing, as fellowship, as eating, sleeping, anything else. Amen? Amen. We need to develop that in our lives. So what is a culture of prayer? You know, the dictionary says culture is the attitudes and behavior characteristic of a particular social group. And the word uh, uh, culture comes from the Latin colere, which means to cultivate, means to acquire or develop a quality, a sentiment, or a skill. So when we're talking about building a culture of prayer, we're talking about building into our lives that quality of prayer, that posture of prayer, that life expression of prayer, the skill of prayer. We're talking about enculturating in- that into our life so that it's a natural expression of who we are. So that his, his house is called a house of prayer. His people are called people of prayer. Like everything else that we want to enculturate in our life, it's going to require that we uh, place high priority, high value on the activity of prayer. We have to place high value on it. We're going to have to make an investment in time in prayer. And we're going to have to pray alone and together, frequently and fervently. Two excellent words when it comes to prayer. Frequently and fervently. A number of years ago, I was in Mississauga, and I went up to a church in Mississauga, and their guest speaker was uh, Dr. Yonggi Cho. And so I got the privilege of going up to Mississauga. It was an invitation-only event. A place was packed right out. And here's this little 
uh, Korean fellow, pastor of the largest church in the world, 850,000 members or something like that. And, uh, and he's up there talking, and I'm listening to Dr. Cho speak, and they were do- taking questions afterwards and asking, how did you, you know, build uh, such, a, you know, an amazing, massive ministry in Korea? And uh, you have to understand that Korea has the largest uh, Pentecostal church, which is Cho's church and the largest in the world, but it also has the largest Methodist church in the world, has the largest Baptist church in the world. Uh, they're all in Seoul, Korea, right? And so they asked him, uh, you know, how is it that happened? And he said, it was simple. He said, two things. He says, I pray and I obey. Started his church with his mother-in-law. That's right. That right there is a breakthrough in prayer. (laughs) Just to start with. Started the church with his mother-in-law. And the first Sunday they had 10 people there and six of them were family members. And, uh, you know, but, you know, as time marched on, he practiced two simple principles. He prayed and he obeyed. And God moved. Amen? R.A. Torrey said, there is nothing else in which the church and the ministry of today, or to be more explicit, you and I have departed more notably and more lamentably from apostolic precedent than in this matter of prayer. And then he says, we do not live in a praying age. We want to build a culture of prayer individually in our lives, but also corporately as a people. We want it to be natural. So that when you're talking to somebody, and how many of you have done this? You say to somebody, hey, how are you doing? And you're shocked when they answer honestly and say, well, actually not very good, right? And then you're like, uh, you don't know what to do. Well, you should know what to do. Well, let's pray about that. And how often do we say to people, it's like saying goodbye. We say, you know, I'll keep you in my prayers, right? I don't know what I'm talking about. My wife and I try to make it a practice never to say that to people without first praying for them. And then saying, we'll keep them in our prayers. So instead of just saying, you know, well, you know, we'll pray about that. Pray about it right there. Stop. Pray about it right there. See, these are the practices we need to. It's a, it's a simple start to developing prayer is to actually do it. Shocking, I know. We do not live in a praying age, R.A. Torres noted. But we can change that. We can create a new culture of prayer here at Desert Stream. We can be known not by man necessarily, but by God as a house and a people of prayer. Amen? Amen. So why is it difficult to build a culture of prayer? What makes it so hard? Well, let's look at prayer in the Old Testament. And uh, we'll start there, and then we'll move forward. Okay? And I think we'll see that there's a few things that get in the way of building a culture of prayer. You know, three ministers were, were gathered together in a pastor's office, and they were talking about prayer. And uh, there was a, you know, a telephone repairman that was working on their system of the church while they were there talking, and he was kind of listening to their conversation. And the one pastor, they were having a conversation about prayer, and they're having a conversation of what's the greatest posture for prayer. So the first pastor, he says, well, I've, I, I'm firmly convinced that the best way to pray, he said, is to pray with your hands together facing up towards God, and that God, God accepts that as the greatest posture of prayer. The second guy, he said, no, 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 no. He said, the greatest posture of prayer, he said, is to be 
turned around. He said, down on your knees. He said, calling out to God. That is the greatest posture of prayer. And the third guy says, no, 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 no. He said, the only real way to pray, he said, is on your face on the floor before God. That is the most effective way to pray. And the telephone prayer man, he couldn't stop it anymore. He finally interrupted. He said, I found most effective time of prayer I ever had was hanging 40 feet in the air. He said, upside down from a telephone pole. That was the greatest place of prayer. Amen. (laughs) And you know, there's a truth to that because the greatest posture of prayer is the prayer where your entire being is engaged with God. How many know if you're hanging upside down from a telephone prayer, a pole, I should say, you're engaged, right? I mean, your whole being is engaged in saying, God, help right now, you know? And we need to have that kind of engagement in our lives when we come to the Lord in prayer. But so many times we come to the Lord and it's just, well, you know, kind of like saying grace over dinner, right? Or something like that. Uh, are we really touching the heart of God? I've had people say to me, prayer should be loud. Other people say, no, it should be quiet. Prayer should be corporate. No, no, it's got to be private. Some people say it's got to be bold. No, it's got to be humble. Some people say in the spirit. No, with understanding. Simply spoken. No, tarried for. According to a formula. No, it's got to come free from the heart. I mean, and you'll hear so many different things about prayer. It's hard to sort out what opinion is right, what opinion is wrong. Is prayer really that complicated? I don't think so. But like anything, man, attempts to regulate or legislate or mandate, the simple beauty and power can be lost to us as we try to figure it all out. And don't feel bad, this has been happening for a long time. So let's, as I said, go to the Old Testament. So in the beginning... Are you ready for something? In the beginning, Adam and Eve had excellent prayer lives. Excellent. Had the best prayer lives probably recorded in Scripture, at least in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve had awesome prayer lives. The Bible says that in the cool of the evening, God would come down and by His Spirit, He'd walk with them in the garden. I mean, talk about a prayer time. They were literally walking with God in the garden. I have many people say to me, my wife is one of them, that they, they love to pray when they're walking. Well, I'll bet you that's quite a walk right there. When you're walking and God comes by His Spirit and walks with them in the garden and they're praying. Now that is a prayer time. Adam and Eve had amazing times in the presence of the Lord. And yet, and yet, everybody say, and yet. Sin shattered that incredible bliss that Adam and Eve had. That incredible line of communication that they enjoyed was completely shattered by sin. And ever since uh, the sin that entered in the garden, man has been in a long uh, and lonely pursuit of trying to reconnect with God. You'll remember that that they were told in the garden after the sin that, that the earth would no longer yield its fruits without work, without labor. And we see how now man has got to, uh, you know, try to gain the harvest through sweat and through toil. And yet the reality is, as hard as the harvest was to obtain after the fall, getting communion with God was even more difficult. It was even more difficult. The gulf between God and man was vast after sin came into the equation. And they went from walking with God and being with God in the cool of the evening to being separated from Him, cut off from His presence. And from those days forward in the Old Testament, you know, it was a documented struggle to try and connect with God. 
Abraham, you know, his first efforts at intercession for Lot and his family. Jacob's wrestling with the angel of the Lord. The cries of Israel to be freed from slavery. Samson's plea from strength. Samuel's struggle to recognize the voice of God in the temple. Job's blues, David's psalms. I mean, we just go forward and forward and forward. And there's such a struggle to connect with God in the Old Testament. It is a record of God's desire to pour out his love upon man and man's inability to connect with him. Then we move into the New Testament. And, you'd th- you know, for 400 years, from Malachi to Matthew, the Bible, there's no historical record that's, that we have in the Scripture of about, for about 400 years, from Malachi until Matthew. So what happened in that 400 years? Did things improve? No, they got worse. Fast forward 400 years, and now you have entire religious institutions that popped up in 400 years that didn't exist in the Old Testament, right? Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and these these, uh, regulators of the law that make it even more difficult for people to connect with God. They hung nooses of legalism around people's necks that made them feel like they were always, always, always on the outside looking in, never connected to God. These entire religious orders rose up and they, they made intimacy with God something so difficult for people to obtain or even imagine. So when Jesus arrives, what does he spend a lot of his time doing in his talking? He, he assails the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He goes after those guys. Listen to what Jesus had to say. He said, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, he said, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go in your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head or perfume or makeup, to put it in modern terminology, and uh, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus had this to say and many other scathing things about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called them whitewashed tombs, vipers. Uh, he, 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 he did not like the weights that they had put upon God's people. Repeatedly, he condemns the religious orders that they had established that made it so difficult for people to approach God. And in in response to all the confusion and the hypocrisy, what did Jesus do for his disciples? He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us not our trespasses, but forgive us those trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus gave a simple process of prayer to the disciples that they could engage in and know that they were heard in the presence of the Lord. It was quite a contrast to what the Pharisees had loaded on them. Then Jesus died. 
The Bible says that he went to the cross and then he ascended on high. And the Bible says there he now ever lives to make intercession for the saints. So in other words, when we pray now, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who is, who is in the gap and he is literally taking the needs of his people and he's presenting them before the Father. Wow. So today, surely you would think today then, there's got to be no problem with prayer. All that stuff from the Old Testament's been done away with. Jesus has paid the price, and he even, he even is there positioned interceding for us. But still, prayer is a difficult thing. Why is it difficult for us to build and enculturate prayer in our lives today? Well, one of the reasons is tradition. A tradition. The bondage of religion is really insidious and powerful, and it, it invades at its very first opportunity. In the first century church, it's amazing how even in the first century, I mean, we're talking about the church that is alive and existing and that the people who are leading the church are people that have been with Jesus, right? And yet even there in the first century, the church got sucked into religious tradition. Galatians chapter five, Paul writes this. He said to the Galatians, he said, you are trying to be justified by law. Uh, You who are trying to be justified by law, by law, sorry, have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion does not, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. You, my brothers, he says, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. It came quickly, folks. Religious tradition was trying to bring the church back into bondage again. They had found uh, liberty and, and, and intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. But no, 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 no. You, you, well, yeah, you can have that, but you got to be circumcised. You got to keep the law. You got to do this. And Paul's like, come on, nonsense. If you're going to say you need to, do that, do, to keep the law in one part, you got to keep it in every part. But the reality is nobody could keep the law. That's why Jesus Christ came to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law by his sacrifice and his precious blood. And so Paul tries to unshackle them from all that guilt and from all that condemnation and to make them realize you can't get close to God through keeping the law. You can't. Not done. And yet I read that passage and come to that verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And every time I read that for years and years and years, I thought Paul was saying, you know, what he's saying there is not to indulge the sinful nature. Well, that's a reference to not, uh, you know, gratifying the flesh by drinking in excess or eating in excess or gossiping or, or any of those other things. And, and I don't really think in context that's what Paul meant. The sinful nature that he's referring to is a sinful nature that's trusting in the law rather than in grace. And he's saying, don't do that. Whether you, you do it by thinking I can, I can sin this far to the line and no further or, or no matter. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, get away from thinking that in any way that you can ever be considered right before God by any other means but Jesus Christ. The only way we can stand before God is to stand before him on the merits of Jesus Christ. 
It's never. Everybody say never. never. It's never on what you've done. Ever, ever, ever. And yet it's amazing to me how quickly we slip back into that. Even as New Testament, God-fearing, spirit-filled, Bible-believing believers, we keep coming back to the point where I've got to do this, 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 and this, and this before God will accept me. No. He accepts you on the completed work of Jesus Christ. Period. Everybody say period. period. End of sentence. Nothing else needed. Nothing else required. That's how we stand before Jesus. Now, once we come into his presence and that's where we stand, how we stand before Jesus, then he has all kinds of things that he wants to do through us and, 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 and do in us. And there are all kinds of things that he may ask of us. He may ask for sacrifice and he may ask for, you know, tears and he may ask for, uh, you know, us to be devoted to him in such a deep, passionate way. But understand that we never get accepted by God because of what we do. We get accepted by God because of what he did. Yes. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. Wow. Praise the Lord. Religion and tradition affects prayer. We're not able to touch God because we get wrapped up and thinking it's all about me again when it's all about him. Familiarity is another problem. Familiarity. The old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, is incredibly true in the arena of prayer. I mean, we, here we are, we have a privilege so incredible, so amazing to come into the very presence of God, paved for us by Jesus Christ, but because it's so easily accessible and so readily available, we take it for granted, right? And we don't take advantage of it. That familiarity builds in us this thing where we, ah, you know, I can do that later. Right? Harry Emerson Fostick said it this way Our failure to think of prayer as a privilege may be partly due to the fact that we can pray anytime. The door to prayer is open so continuously that we fail to avail ourselves of an opportunity which is always there. So, tradition is one of the things that keeps us from praying. Uh, familiarity is another thing. Third one is a lack of passion or urgency. I believe there's a sense in which because we've got things so good here, there isn't a real urgency in our prayer life. So, you know, if some of family members are really sick, well, then we'll go to God in prayer. If we hear about somebody who's really got a difficult struggle, then we'll pray. You know, most couples come to me for help with their marriage after, uh, you know, uh, they've allowed it to just deteriorate when they should have started with prayer right in the beginning. And then they want you to come in and they fix it in, in, you know, one week when you've spent 10 years doing nothing. Hello? Doesn't work that way. We've got this incredible uh, privilege and we have this ability to come to God in prayer, but there's no urgency in the body. And like I said, it's probably because we're so blessed here and we have so many things that, that, that God has blessed us with. But when you go to some place like the Philippines or Africa or even Central America and where every day is a constant struggle, they know the urgency and the need there is for prayer. And that's why you'll find them calling out on God. I think you'll know you have revival when a people that are in a culture that thinks it doesn't need God recognize that they need God. That's when you're going to have revival. If we as a people can recognize our need for God and, devout, and develop an urgency in our spirit for the things of God, whew, prayer is going to explode. Explode. We must pray. If there's one thing the Lord's impressing on me, is that 
we need to catch this culture of prayer in our life and develop it so that God can move in our land. You could ask the question, why does God move in answer to prayer? You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if I fully know the answer to that. The reality is, God knows the beginning from the end. God knows and can do anything. And yet, everybody say, and yet. And yet, he said, there are so many things that only come about by prayer. And it seems to me that if God's going to tell us that, that there's some things that are only going to come by prayer, by fasting, by waiting on him, then we better learn how to pray. Because I don't want to be just a mediocre Christian. I don't want to be just a slip into heaven by the seat of my pants Christian. I want to be somebody who comes into his presence with trumpets blaring. Uh, you know, who's able to come into God's presence and see all around me the people that are there because of the times I spent with the Lord in prayer. So my desire over the next number of weeks is to do everything I can in my own life and in my own prayer life to help develop prayer life in you. And I want to conclude with a little story I found one day. It says, uh, one day a boy was watching a pastor praying on the banks of a river. When the pastor had completed his prayer, the boy went over and he asked me, he said, will you teach me to pray, pastor? The pastor studied the boy's face carefully. Then he gripped the kid by the head with both hands and he shoved it under the water in the river and he held it there. The kid's flopping around and, and you know, just when he seems like he's going to not an ounce of air left with him, the preacher finally lets the kid back up and the kid looks over at him and goes, what in the world did you do that for? And the pastor looked at me and said, when you are des- as desperate for God as you were for that breath that you just took, then I can teach you to pray. And You know, the scripture puts it this way. It says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. (sighs) Jesus can't teach us to pray if we're not desperate for him, if we're not hungry for him. But if we will develop a hunger for the Lord, if we will have an appetite for his presence, then God can teach us to pray. He can teach us how to touch his heart, how to how to see things accomplished in prayer that we never dreamed possible. But it comes from a heart that wants him more than anything else. Amen? Stand with me this morning. Okay. Ladies are starting prayer back up this Wednesday. What time, Ann? Eight to nine? Eight to nine here on Wednesday morning. Um, I would like us as a, as a church to just pray today as we close. There's a number of people that are sick. We have some people that have uh, tested positive for COVID. And uh, I know that uh, there's many people in the area that are, have been diagnosed or tested positive with, with COVID. And... Uh, we need, to, we need to tackle the fear uh, that comes attached to that stuff just as much as we need to ask God for healing. Amen. Uh, we also, uh, Shelba Cox was uh, taken to the hospital in the middle of the night. She had a heart attack last night. Uh, so they're fixing her up in the hospital today and I believe going to send her to Kingston tomorrow to have uh, 
either stints or whatever done. So pray for her today. We're going to pray for her and ask God to touch her body. Amen. There's many needs, I'm sure. And if you have a need this morning that is, uh, that is either for your life or someone close to you, I want you to just slip a hand up and, and then I want you to hold that up to the Lord right now. Just hold that up to the Lord. We're going to end our service today with some practicum. And uh, I want you to just join hands with the person beside you if they're in your bubble. And uh, I want you to pray for that individual this morning. We're going to pray for these hands lifted up. We're going to ask God to minister in each and every one of these situations. Amen? Amen. Father, we we have our hands lifted up today in faith. We have needs, Lord. We're coming before you as a people with needs. And Lord, this is one of the steps of developing desperation is to recognize that I have a need that only you can meet, Father. And so I bring it to you today and I ask you, God, to meet these needs. Father, we ask for healing in the lives of people in our house, Lord, of those that are sick, Lord, those that, Father, have even contracted this virus. In Jesus' name, we ask you for healing in their lives. We ask you, Father, to deliver them, Father, to release them from the grips of sickness and, Father, and the grip of disease and to free them in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for Shelba today, Lord. We ask God for healing in her life. We're praying, Father, for everything to be made well for her. Lord, we're asking God for all of the needs that are represented by all of the hands raised in this place today. We're asking, Father, for divine intervention in every situation. Father, in every life, in every home, in every circumstance, Father, we come to you today. Father, we ask for you today to intervene in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Right now, I just want you to pray uh, for those hands that are raised. Begin to just pray out loud. Just begin to ask God to do that work in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you right now, even for answered prayer. Father, we thank you for miracles being released. We thank you for open heaven, Lord, over this house, open heaven, over the homes, over the families, in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for healing is in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now just lift your hands up, both your hands up to Jesus this morning like this. Just lift them up to the Lord. I want you to pray this with me in closing today. Dear Jesus, Help me me. to develop develop a hunger for God God that is as desperate as as my need for air. air. Father, I pray pray that I would be able to develop develop a culture of prayer in my life life. from where where I never turn back, but I always go, go forward. Help us, Lord. To be a people of prayer and a people of power. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Next week we're going to start, we're going to start uh, and continue from here by teaching you how to pray. And uh, we're going to go right into it. So make sure you're here. Bring a friend uh, or you watch online because we don't want you to miss out on what God's doing. God bless you. Have an amazing day in the Lord.